Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're joined by Joe Jacoby, who is an Olympic gold medalist, a performance coach, and most importantly, the winner of our 5 and 5 writing challenge. Yay! <laughs> Joe, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you both. Uh, for folks who haven't uh, come across you before, can you give them a little background to tell them about how you got where you are now, what slalom canoeing is, all of these sorts of things? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think first, I think maybe one of the interesting parts there, Jonathan, is that uh, a couple of years ago, I made a quality of life move over to the Spanish state of Catalonia. And Literally, I right outside of my sliding glass door window is the 1992 Olympic whitewater canoeing venue where my canoe partner, Scott Strauspal, and I won America's first ever Olympic gold medal in the sport of whitewater canoeing at the 92 Olympic Games. Yeah, so it was kind of an exciting opportunity to, to move uh, away from the United States and, and to move into a new place and, and a place that, I mean, obviously I have famili- familiarity. I, my canoe partner and I spent a lot of time here in the year before the 92 Olympics. And I think that was kind of part of the idea was that, you know, if you think of a business traveler who uh, has to go on the road to make uh, presentations, um, you want to figure out how to be comfortable in the environment where you're going to be performing. And I think that was something that kind of hit me at a very young age back in the early 1990s when we came here, was that not only how to figure out how to be good on the river here, but how can we be comfortable in the environment and in the culture? And that just kind of changed my mindset and and just opened myself to this wonderful culture here in Catalonia. And by the day of the Olympic race, even before the race happened, I mean, we, you know, I had so many friends here. I really enjoyed the culture, the environment, and then winning just kind of deep in that relationships times ten thousand. And uh, so, much later in my life, I have the opportunity to come back, learn a new culture, learn a new language, and I am able to run my performance coaching business. Um, here, mostly virtually, not fully, but mostly virtually from uh, right here next to the 1992 Olympic venue in La Seo de Rochelle, Catalonia. I love that you have literally a visual of a high point in your life right out at your window. I mean... <laughs> yeah. it, and, and I think that it's interesting because, Rochelle, because it wasn't that I wanted to come here to sort of relive anything. I think coming here reminds me that I have an opportunity to learn new things and to challenge myself in a much different way. I mean, I kind of tell people a little bit jokingly, but not completely, that these days I speak a language I barely understand, which is Catalan. We don't speak, we do typically don't speak Spanish here in La Seo de We speak, you know, the language of Catalonia, which is a little bit different. It's not very practical, but I, I, it takes a lot of work to learn a new language and to communicate with people and learn it and then adapt in a new culture. But there is a simplicity to life that exists over here. There's kind of a, uh, a simplicity, a slowing down, kind of a focusing on what's important. And that's what I love to kind of incorporate into my coaching practice as well. And with my clients that, that even if you're, objective or goal is to go faster or to do more that I think when you sort of slow down and you look at the technique and look at the technical aspects 
of what you're doing in sport or in business that you have the opportunity to replicate and repeat the right things more often. Yeah, there's a quote my personal trainer says, uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. That's exactly it, right, Jonathan? Because when you slow down, like, I mean, Jonathan, I read where you recently, you achieved your black belt. Congratulations on that. And I was actually thinking about this before this conversation. And you think about all the different kinds of body movements that you have done in the course of all of these years um, training for this moment. And when you sort of move through those mo- those movements very slowly and you kind of feel them in, in your bones and in your muscles and your kind of connective tissues, then you can speed up and, and begin to put those um, together. But, you know, if you just kind of started doing those movements super quickly right off the bat, you'd be kind of flailing and, you know, you, you, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be doing the right things very effectively. It's a hundred percent true. Yep. Certainly, it has to be a life-changing experience to win an Olympic gold medal. I've heard ESPN stories about what happens after. I'm curious how you, I mean, is a, you know, 92, that's a while ago. I mean, how, is that 20? Jeez, Louise. <laughs> it's kept, it kept, you sure you want to do this? <laughs> so we're about the same age. So, I mean, if you can collapse, you know, 25 years, what was the progress from that moment to performance coaching it, it seems like a good fit it seems like an obvious fit but I, I can't imagine that you're like great won the gold medal now i'm gonna start a coaching business well so actually jonathan is sort of a great story that uh i was on the bus going to the closing ceremonies at the 1992 olympic games in barcelona and i was sitting next to my coach and he said so what are you going to do when you get back to the united states and i said i I would love to do some motivational. Speaking. Oh, wow. Right away. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, those opportunities happen. And my coach who had coached an Olympic champion in canoeing four years earlier said, well, let me give you the advice that I gave to the, uh, um, to the last person I coached who had won a gold medal at the Olympics, that when you go back to the United States, you're going to get a lot of opportunities to speak. And for a few weeks, you can pretty much get up on the stage and say anything and that will be interesting to people. But then it's human nature for people to start to ask, okay, Joe, it's great. You won a gold medal at the Olympics, but how does that help me? And my coach said, if you can just keep asking yourself that question, how does that help other people? You can keep doing this for a long time. And, and I've never forgotten that, that, that message. And a lot of what I do in my performance coaching today is that I actually liken the, the kind of the river of business and the river of life, kind of this downstream flow, navigating rocks and obstacles. I've identified over a hundred concepts and strategies and experiences from my canoeing career and transferred them to sort of this real business of life and business of the river, you know, the river of business, the river of life uh, concept. And I think that's a model that people can really work with. Like the river doesn't really stop for anyone. And Jonathan, actually, you've used river analogies on this podcast before about upstream and downstream and, and kind of the things that happen. I've just taken those and just really dialed in on them in in a very deep and detailed way, whether it's strategic planning with executive teams or 
managing transition or really just trying to identify what kind of river that we're paddling. In most cases, I think people sort of feel like their lives are headed towards a 50-foot waterfall and they're all going to die. And usually what it is, it's something more like it's a pretty gentle river, but the river's just going around a bend and they can't see. And so that they just don't know what to expect. And, and there's a big difference between the two. And as you begin to adapt and change mindsets, so that's kind of how this sort of all came about for me. I'm really good at a, kind of aligning these elements of the river. And, and that creates sort of a language that, that I can speak with clients and with executive teams. And it even helps executives kind of hear their own team members speak free of the lingo and vocabulary that often obstructs a good dialogue and good conversation in an executive meeting room. What, what strikes me as I'm listening to that is, is you've just described a point of view, which is one of the things that we talk a lot about on the show, is what is your belief system around your area of expertise? And then how do you translate that into the, the client transformations? Absolutely. And even as I was talking about that, Rochelle, as I've learned more about your past and consulting and working with teams, I mean, I'm sure you experienced so many times just where just the lingo and just the vocabulary kind of be began to put up flags and barriers in the way teams talk to each other. And I think when we can sort of give people a new way of kind of looking at uh, a problem and a different way to talk about it, I think one of the things that we see, especially for the chief executive officer, is that you, all of a sudden, they kind of hear their people talk in a way that they're not used to hearing them talk, but the information is so raw and real and that honesty and transparency is so welcomed in, in that setting. Yeah, there's a lot of noise I think for people, and especially in corporate teams, and we all speak a different language. So when you can get everyone kind of hearing what's actually being said with minus the filters, it's really powerful. Yeah. And it, when you figure out ways to help teams open those doors, like those are great days. Yeah. Like those are just, <laughs> those are wonderful days. Yeah. 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 Yeah, bringing a visual metaphor to abstract terms like branding and strategy and value that everybody might be using the same words, but it's almost certain that if you have 12 people in a room, they aren't defined the same way in everybody's minds. So if you get, you know, just because of, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they're they just from a different background or they're newer to business or they've just misunderstood the term or learned it the wrong way. So if you, if you change it to physical things like... Um, Campfire is one I use all the time. Like everybody knows what a campfire is. So you can imagine like kindling and larger sticks and logs and embers and, and flames. And the difference between an ember and a flame is obvious. So when you think about that and use it to describe something like marketing, which is what I use that metaphor for, do you see that light bulb moment? Their eyes are like, oh, oh, okay. So what happened next? Did you, you know, sort of get the celebrity treatment when you got back and then immediately started to migrate into motivational speaking or was there a, a lag? Did you write a book or, you know, what happened next? <laughs> I think one of the things I had to wrestle with was to decide whether I wanted to keep competing. And, and so I actually did decide to ultimately keep competing. Uh, I, I won the Olympics in 1992. I actually went back to the Olympics 12 years later at age 34 and the Olympic Games in Athens. And uh, my life was so different 
12 years later, you know, I had a three-year-old daughter and, and I was much more like a regular person and, and, you know, with a, uh, a mortgage payment and, and that was great to kind of go to the Olympics, you know, with that kind of experience. But, um, after that, I was also beginning to, I, what my life in after sport was going to look like. Uh, I think one of the really big kind of uh, experiences for me, Jonathan and Rochelle, was that uh, for five years between 2009 and 2014, I was the chief executive officer of USA Canoe Kayak, which was the national governing body for the sport of canoeing underneath the umbrella of, um, of the U.S. Olympic Committee. And it's the only time in my life that I've ever had like a regular, you know, paycheck kind of job. And I was a CEO of an organization and there was a lot of, you know, learning <laughs> trial by fire <laughs> in, in that kind of situation. And look, serving America's athletes that are trying to win medals is, is was a really noble, you know, cause. And, and, and I learned a lot. During those five years, the first two and a half years, like I really lost my way with my health with my, you know, kind of outlook on life. Uh, it was taking care of everyone else without taking care of myself. And so I kind of figured that out halfway through. And, and as I started to do that, I mean, initially it kind of ha happened in the form of like losing a lot of weight that I had gained uh, during that time. And then after that, this, I was thinking, okay, I'm feeling better. What else can I do? And I began to kind of work on my creativity and my mental health. And then kind of started looking at relationships and then eventually, you know, figuring out how to kind of check a box on gratitude every day. And I got my, myself into a better place where not only was I doing good work at USA Canoe Kayak, but I said, it would be interesting to kind of take this long journey of health and wellness and ways of improve myself and working with elite athletes are good, but it would be great to share this more widely and apply it, you know, to people who are stuck and, and people who are having a hard time. And, and that's really where the impetus for the coaching practice came, came about. So I left my CEO job at USA Canoe Kayak. I started to write a weekly blog called Sunday Morning Joe. And uh, that's kind of was not long after that. People said this writing is, is really good. Do you do coaching? And, and that was kind of the launch of the coaching practice. Got it. And that started around 2014 you started writing? Yeah, I started writing in 2014, and it's 2015 was when I started uh, um, Five with Joe, my performance coaching practice. So, um, and it that's been a that's been a slow growth, but um, that's okay. Like I'm I'm not scared of slow growth. I'm I'm in fact I'm a big advocate of it. I, you know, I think there was a sports physiologist at the U.S. Olympic Committee who. Um, he had kind of 10 laws of, of sports, you know, elite sports performance. And one of them was big trees grow slowly. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> and, one. <laughs> um, you know, it yeah. is, it's, it's a really good one. And I, I think my coaching practice kind of falls into that category. Um, I'm patient and, uh, but I mean, five years later, I mean, things, you know, I've had a really good year this year and um, a lot of uh, kind of, I think even, Every once in a while, you need some uh, validation, like, "Hey, I'm I, I can do this, right? Like, I'm I'm a good coach." And this year was a really good year for that. You know, I've I've worked with about thirty clients this year, and uh, um, 
I'm a solopreneur and uh, I love it. I just, I think one of the things that I've really figured out about the coaching business is that um, it's not about wanting to grow a big coaching business. I would say that, you know, if, if I want to grow anything around me, it's around having people around me that allow me to kind of open up my computer screen and start coaching and start doing, you know, video coaching via video calls. So I do most of my coaching that way. And that's what I love doing. And I think you, and I do like writing as well. I, I still enjoy doing that too. And, and, uh, your five and five challenge kind of gave me a way to kind of, you know, take the idea of weekly blogging and, and experiment with doing something more every day. And people throw challenges out all the time. I just, you guys had so much credibility with me because you've given so much good advice via this podcast. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this. And uh, my experience with the five and five was actually really good. I posted most of my content I chose a theme. It was a, it was a counter being, you know, finding your counterintuitive self. You know, how do you be more counterintuitive and kind of look at situations differently? And I did that for five days. And uh, most of what I published was on LinkedIn and it was, it did really well. And it was, it, the, the conversation was great. What I liked about five and five the most was just it even more than the, kind of connecting with people and, and seeing the content do well is that what I would say that what you guys are advocating for in the sort of the daily communication is that it helps you find your voice. Yes. Yeah. No matter what kind of work you're doing, I think the value of kind of finding and strengthening your own voice is really important that to me, you know, was, was really nice in that, in that exercise. I think you find your voice a lot faster when you have to write every day versus once a week. I'm a person who's been on the once a week train for a long time. Are, are you continuing? Are you going to write some more? What my plan was, so I have this uh, Sunday morning Joe, which is my weekly post was, was really more like <laughs> therapy for me as, as much as, uh, <laughs> It wasn't really business development, but for my, what I have decided is that Five with Joe kind of needs to kind of have its own outlet. And I don't know what the frequency, what the right frequency is for that yet, but that was one of the real reasons that I wanted to um, kind of participate in your challenge was to kind of see what that might begin to look like. I mean, writing more for the development of a coaching practice. And, and when I say that, as both of you know, that is still has to be about serving other people and, um, and, and adding value to other people. And, 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 and I, think, I think one thing that I, I think I continue to think about as I listen to, to you guys find different ways to talk about this every week is like, we, for any of us that are going to kind of follow up on the advice that you guys give on the podcast and the ideas that you share, it, there just has to be a place in your heart that enjoys doing this, that wants to like be more of an authority. It's not, it, it's got to come from the heart equally as much, if not more than from the head. Like, I don't know how, I was curious is uh, sort of my question almost for both of you is if to kind of hear you guys talk about that difference between being an authority and the part that comes from your, you know, that disc, that space between your head and your heart. 
I'll jump in there because I I feel like that's a big piece of it. It's it's hard to do this without having your heart engaged. It, I mean, it just is because it, it it's so much easier to do something else than to do something like this, where especially if you're just starting, where hitting publish feels huge. It feels like you're pushing this rock up the hill. The closer your heart is to this, the better a writer. And when I say writer, I also mean podcaster, you know, video person, whatever medium you use, the better you're going to be. It's got to connect. I, I just don't see how you can stay with it if it doesn't. I get questions all the time from people that that are like, what's your strategy with daily writing? You know, like, how do you monetize it? And, and it's my job, but it feels more like you know, I always say funding the mission where I'm like on a mission and I just need to figure out how to get enough money to keep doing the mission. I mean, you could think of it like a hobby, like, oh, I wish I could do knitting professionally. Well, figure out a way to like fund yourself so you can pay for food and, and clothing and shelter and keep doing this thing you love. I love writing and it's not, but it's not, I don't love writing for the sake of writing. I'm not trying to impress myself or like get, like become a better and better artist in that sort of abstract sense. I mean, like, I want to be a better, I love writing for people who then are glad they read it. So, you know what I mean? Like I want to, whether it's entertainment or whether it's some kind of useful business takeaway or some insight about, you know, the difference between strategy and tactics, let's say, or, or something like that. It's like the best part of my day most days when I get to sit down and like, it's selfish in a way because I thoroughly enjoy it. But it wouldn't do it wouldn't do it for me if I just wrote the thing and then closed my computer. Like I need to send it. Like it needs to be published. People need to read it, and um, and it has. And then when you get enough feedback, you get enough regular feedback from people that is like, this blew my mind, or this this my favorite one is this came at just the right time. Like I get that one a lot. This came. I, this is exactly what I need to read today, and I and it's funny because. On the surface, from the outside, if you're not part of a, a community like this, then it's people are like email every day. You know, who would read that? Who would read an email from someone every day? It seems preposterous, but that's because most emails aren't that good. You know, they're not. And when I say good, I, it should be more specific. They're not that useful. They're not entertaining. They're not helpful. They're not. They're not worth the time it took to read them. Which is a you know, it feels like it's a pretty low bar if they're short emails. <laughs> You should be able to, so I'm always thinking, I'm always thinking like there needs to be a moral to this story or a punchline to this one. Or like, what's the moral of this story? What am I trying to say? So like a lot of them, they'll end with like, now here's the thing. So I'll tell a story about somebody, you know, trying to light a wet piece of firewood and you know, that happened to me that day. And it's just like, and I'll try to make the story entertaining enough to keep them reading for a few hundred words. And then like, here's the punchline. Here's the thing. Like, this is just like trying to, you know, whatever trying to like market to everyone you know it's like trying to catch a wet log on fire with a match it's not going to happen um, or whatever but it, but to me it's always about delivering some customer satisfaction if you want to think of it like that or like I'm, I'm glad i read this i want every single time i want them to be like oh i'm so glad i read that and to me that's um that's what getting better as a writer is to me it doesn't it can be entertaining it could be just purely entertaining but as long as the the people who are reading it are glad they did I feel like I'm getting, like the more often that happens, I feel like I'm getting better as a writer in the way that I want to be. So it's not like being the next like 
whatever Steinbeck or whoever. The value is in the audience versus trying to get an award for fabulous writing, right? Yeah. You're not looking for a Pulitzer. No, I could care less about that. It literally means nothing to me. I mean, it'd be nice if somebody wants to send me a Pulitzer. <laughs> they, they have a new Pulitzer for podcasts, but they're journalistic podcasts, so I, I don't think we qualify. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, of course, it's nice to get those sorts of recognitions once in a while, but that's not that's absolutely not what I care about. And the other, the other I guess that's a gr- good thing to bring up, because it's not about... Um, it's not about like, oh, if I... It's not like I sat down and said, if I write every day then I'm going to be rich in three years. Like it, there might be a, you know, like I know it's going to be good for my business if I become a better writer and I help people every day with my writing. Like I know that's, of course, that's going to happen. It's like a, but it's a side effect. That's not every morning. I'm not like looking at my computer and saying, uh, when's that giant check going to come? I have to write another one of these things. And someday this giant check is going to come. It's like, I don't look at it like that at all. And when I get questions from people, like, how do you, how do you justify spending all this time? It's not even that much time, but how do you justify spending all this time on this thing? You know, what's the payoff? How are you going to monetize it? How's where, how, what is this doing for your business? And I'm like, I don't need to justify. It's like saying, it's like justifying, like getting a massage. It's awesome. Like why? You know what I mean? Or like taking a shower. It's just a thing I do that I enjoy so I don't need to justify it. And, it, and it's not like, I mean, I suppose if it took me eight hours every day, I'd probably have a problem, but, um, but yeah, it's not, it's, it's when, so, when you get that question, like the person's not there yet. They don't, they're not understanding that it's the process itself that I dig and it's not the, and it'll maybe lead to an amazing outcome. Maybe it won't, but guess what? I enjoyed myself the entire way. So kind of yes. doesn't matter. I, I think that's, it's that, it's the sifting through the idea of what, of what you're putting together has so much value. And I, I, and I think that's it. I think that's part of it for me, Jonathan and Rochelle is that if you can really find some value in this process of creating before you hit the publish button, before you hit the send button and like, and then anything else that sort of happens beyond that is like icing on the cake. Like, that's a great situation to be in, you know, with your, with your content development. If you enjoyed putting the process together in a way that kind of helped you flush out an idea, develop that point of view, kind of coming back to your words, Rochelle, you know, and, and, and strengthen that. Like there's so many good things that kind of come from the art of practicing. And um, then you, you may get a great response uh, from it. And it's just, that just often when it happens, it just feels like, bonus like it feels it literally feels like icing on the cake um when that happens so that feedback that you had in linkedin that you really felt that it sounds like um it that happened but it it was so it's the content i put i sort of did a mix of uh videos and um and some written posts and uh one of the things that i have learned i think I think people enjoy when I find ways to take them into Catalonia or share Catalan values in, in what I'm doing. And, and not to say like, Hey, you should like sell all your belongings in your house and make this move. (laughs) That's not it. But I also know of very few Americans that couldn't afford to kind of take a closer look 
at the way, you know, at the kind of the simple and slower way that Catalans live and say, if we were to apply one element of that, you know, to your, to your workflow or to the way that you kind of develop relationships or develop perspective or disposition, you know, what might that look like? And, um, and I, and I, I think a lot of my ideas, I think at this point do come from, you know, things that influence me here, you know, about a lot of the ways the Catalans, you know, approach life and relationships and work and, and, uh, you know, it, it's, again, I'm not, I'm just trying to find ways to put people here. So like, for example, one of my videos, I was kind of walking through downtown Yeda, which is one of the larger cities in, uh, in Catalonia. And I had a, I was using a selfie stick and talking into the camera, but I was talking about the idea of lessening resistance. Um, I think I was telling a story about how a lot of clients will tell me, I want to run, but I don't think I can run a marathon. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, you don't have to run a marathon. It's like, I, and I was talking about how my favorite running stories these days are just people who put their running clothes out on the chair next to the bed uh, before they go to sleep. So when they wake up, they've lessened the resistance to putting on the clothes and going out and running for five minutes, like, or even walking for 30 minutes and maybe once every five minutes running for 30 seconds. And whatever that takes to kind of help lessen the resistance, I said, that's counterintuitive thinking, which was part of my theme. And people, and I think people loved looking at this city center walk of downtown Yeda in autumn in Europe. And, and that was kind of fun, but there was a real message behind it as well. I've kind of learned that. And I, I'm mindful of that. I like to, that's kind of part of what I do here is I bring people here. But that's also a big part of how my canoe partner and I won the Olympic Games. We didn't just become good canoeists on the river here. We got into the culture where we were. We built relationships. We kind of, um, you know, established a way of life, you know, that kind of made us feel like we sort of unpacked the suitcase and put our clothes in the closet as opposed to just sort of living out of the duffel bag. I, it's, it, those were the words I said to myself when I first arrived here in Laseo one year before the Olympic Games was a year from now at the Olympics, I don't want to wake up in the Olympic Village as an American visitor in the Olympic Village. I, I want to feel like I belong here. And it, after that, it was like things started to change. Like my relationship with the local people changed. Like when I went to the supermarket, I wasn't just having an exchange with a clerk. I was like, that was an exchange with a neighbor. And when you look at things like that, your performance zone begins to change and your comfort with the environment begins to change. And it's just been applying those lessons to life ever since. Uh, yeah, I was telling my wife the other night about, because she was asking me uh, about, oh, do you feel different now that you have your black belt or that that, you know, it's like such a, I mean, you know, it's like you build up and 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 then, whoa, I did it. Now what? And she was like, what? And, and to your point about uh, a neighbor, not a clerk, like when I was, a, the thing that struck out to me was when I was little, because I, I did karate as a little kid, but back then it was very much, it was all about, I was doing it because I wanted a little bit the self-defense, but it, it was basically a cool thing to do. I just wanted to be cool. And doing it this time, starting again at age 45, like starting over at age 45, 
um, I, I didn't, I just like, it was so, you know, I wasn't 12 or 14 anymore. I it didn't think like that. I know I'm not cool. <laughs> it's not happening <laughs> at this point. So it was definitely not about being cool, but you know, so what, so then like, well, what the question is, what was it about? And, and I noticed that this time through, uh, I wasn't just thinking about like, how high can I kick and how deep is my split? And, you know, just, you know, how good is my spinning back kick? Now it was much more, I very much became the fabric of this school. And it's a big school. There's lots of students, you know, four or 500 students. It's big. And there's barbecues, there are people, you know, carpools, there are people who, you know, can you watch my kids while I run to the store and get dinner? And, and it's very much a community. And, um, it feels like it feels exactly like being part of a fabric, which makes me stronger, but it also makes the fabric stronger. Like it's stronger than I could possibly be on my own. And it also creates this, it creates a different kind of strength because now you've um, like, as soon as like, as soon as you get that black belt, it's, it's symbolic. And all of a sudden, you know, on, on Friday, I wasn't a black belt on Saturday, same exact guy. Now I'm a black belt. And it's like, Whoa, I don't feel like anything changed. And all of a sudden now it was like, I went from like, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. feeling like, yeah, feeling like a, you know, good, good chances of passing. And the next day I'm like, I feel like I have something to live up to now. I feel like there are a million things that I need to fix and, and, but not for myself. And it's not because it's about, it's because it's about everybody else and being part of that to, to tie it into what you're talking about. I can imagine that becoming a part of the fabric of that community dramatically changed like your physiology you know you were there for a year ahead of time that must have changed so much about you just everything like your vibe your feeling your sense of confidence like these things of course all affect your performance right i mean they have to yes i i mean i just you know i think that we sort of choose these activities in 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 a way that um you know and I talk to the young kids about this now that are chasing the Olympics that find some reasons beyond the result that you're excited about doing this. Like, you know, you, you have to figure out, you can enjoy the toughness part of it. You can enjoy the relation. For me, it was a lot about relationships. I, I think whitewater canoeing in itself is a super cool sport. Like you're working with a force much bigger and stronger than you and you're it's a gravity sport and there's lots of cool feeling to it. I just, just thought, you know, for the way that people find their way into the sport is incredible. Like kids don't, don't go to their PE teachers and check out canoes and kayaks during recess, (laughs) you know, and it's just like, how did you get here? And it's like, now we're we're all marching into the opening ceremonies at the Olympic games together. Like, and, we stumbled across this thing. And so the, the relationships always lit me up and, and La Salle d'Urgell and, and the host city, you know, which was, it's about two hours North of Barcelona, which was the main host city. So in La Salle, this Catalan town of 12,000 people, whitewater canoeing was the only thing in this town. And it was a big deal. And this beautiful park that is right outside my window is now not only the national training center for the Spanish canoeing program and a place I get to go coach athletes, you know, you know, each morning, but it is this incredible um, 
uh, resources, uh, a public health resource for our town and people walk there and have picnics and little kids learn to ride their bikes and, and it just has this fabulous legacy to it. And like, I, I just feel so connected to all of that now. And, and it, that just, that continues to light me up in new and different ways. Like I'm super challenged just living here and, you know, to that end, we can, I think we have a way of kind of waking up in the same bed and the same, with the same sounds and the same, you know, sort of environment each day. And uh, we, it, if you're not careful, you can check out in a lot of ways. And I think moving to a new place, it's like, I wake up every morning, I hear that language being spoken outside my door. And there's just that moment, like, where am I? What, what's going on? And it takes a second or two and it clicks in. Yes. Like I moved here. It's like, it was a way of challenging myself to keep growing and keep learning. And that's, that's, that's a, a big part of kind of my advocacy, uh, you know, today and, and what I like to share and talk about with other people. Yeah. We talked to Seth Godin a couple of weeks ago and it was a great conversation. Oh, thank God. There were so many, <laughs> so many great, great points. My favorite. In fact, the thing that I think it was the thing that really turned me on to Seth Godin in the first place years ago was in his book, Lynchpin. He, he described and he's described it in other books, but this is where I first saw it, um, where your comfort zone and your security zone are not the same thing. And that is a very scary thought if you're blind to it. Like if you it scares me to imagine all the people who think they're doing the safe thing by doing the comfortable thing. Because they're, they are, it's the opposite. You know, talk about, you know, uh, 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 not a paradox. What, what was your theme? The uh, counterintuitive theme? If it's yes. comfortable, it must be safe. Nope. No, no, no. <laughs> In times of change, whatever feels safe is probably really risky, which is so weird. It doesn't, it doesn't sound right, but... Um, when I, when, when I saw those, the graph is a graph in the book of these like two circles and like, you know, maybe in the fifties they overlapped maybe they never did, but it felt like they did sort of the end of the industrial, uh, era. And then they started to move and, and the institutions, you know, like public school is one obvious example. Um, they move slowly and they move slower than, than the culture. So if the culture and society and technology, they're all changing very quickly and you're still doing the comfortable thing, whatever, memorizing stuff to take your SATs, let's say it's very scary. You know, I'm sort of scared for people who don't recognize the different, the, the, pro, the disconnect there. And the, the idea of moving out of your comfort zone to this place where, you know, there's a foreign language spoken outside your door every morning that you as you said, barely understand is a, a, a great way to kind of throw yourself out of your comfort zone into something that probably more secure than if you hadn't, because then who knows if you or someone else, but when people are just doing the comfortable thing, it's like they're checked out. Like you said, it's like, what are you doing? You know, like, why do you get out of bed? Yeah. And I think it's really hard for people that do the kind of work that we do. And when I say we, I'm including our listeners without getting out of your comfort zone. We've got to take risks. We have to push the envelope and we don't have to be on the bleeding edge necessarily, but we have to keep pushing. I mean, it's part of our jobs. I think one of the things that sort of one of my midlife kind of wake ups in, in all of this was, uh, 
I was listening to an on being uh, podcast uh, with Krista Tippett, you know, NPR and uh, that show. And she was interviewing and it was a 2008 or 2007 interview with uh, the Irish mystic poet uh, priest, uh, John O'Donohue. And it, it was incredible. I mean, O'Donohue just had this, his voice just lulled you in. It was just the most incredible command of the English language I've ever heard. But what took me in about this conversation was that O'Donohue was talking about all these end-of-life conversations that he was having with people at the very end. And what he noticed was that he talked about how there was this moment between the time that you kind of let go and the time you go and, and at the very end. And he said it just might be a couple of minutes, but he said it wasn't like there was regret at that moment, that there really was this kind of this little moment of peace. But what he did sort of his takeaway after kind of all these end of life moments with people was that there was this feeling of that it was like there was an orange in their hand. And it was a matter of like, did they squeeze all the juice out of that orange or did they kind of leave juice in, in there? And it was like, that one really got me thinking kind of woke me up and like, I want to be like one of those people that's, that really squeezed the orange dry at the end if I get to go out like that. And that was, that was very much a, a big one for me, kind of listening to him. And Donahue passed away not long after that podcast early. And, and you know, his books are, are, were very powerful. But that, that conversation, that idea of squeezing out the orange was, was a big one for me. And just, you know, it just sort of helps you to step back and say, where's all this going? What, what do I want to, you know, what do I want at that? If there is that little bit of moment between the time I let go and the time I go, you know, what, what is that little kind of slice of, slice of life going to look like for me? And that, that made a big impact on me. I can see that. I'm going to search to see if we can find a link to that in the show notes. You, yeah. It sounds like it was a about 10 years ago, but we can probably dig it up. Internet being what it is. <laughs> we'll give it a shot. I'm happy to send you that, that podcast. I send it to a lot oh, of people. It's that'd be wonderful. great. Perfect. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yes. That would make it a lot easier. <laughs> Let's do it. So we should probably start to think about wrapping up. Um, I wonder if, if you have any feedback for folks who maybe didn't take the challenge or quite a few people did take the challenge by the way. And thank you very much for that folks. We are going to be sharing that stuff out. I don't think we have done it yet, but we are getting organized to share all that stuff out. Joe, is there anything you can sort of take away from the experience that would perhaps inspire folks to try something different like this, even if it was just for a, a short period of time? I, I think you just, you sort of hit the nail in, inside the question, Jonathan, is that we should be willing to try more, more things and, this is how we grow. This is how we ultimately change. And what I tell the athletes that I coach all the time is that we, when we're on the start line of a race, of a canoe race, it doesn't do us any good to think about what color medal that we may or may not win. All we can do on the start line is work with what we have today. And it's like, I'm just trying to help people a kind of expand their capacity for doing that and be, you know, use, use that energy to, to do something, to serve, to share, to kind of, you know, put your voice out in, into the world. And uh, it's not just about kind of creating and, and waiting. I think it's also one of the things that I did was I kind of looked around 
for example, for the five and five hashtag. And I went to other people's content because I wanted, I was like, Hey, this is kind of cool. Maybe I'll kind of meet and learn about some other people who listen to the podcast as well. I've connected with a few on LinkedIn already. And so I think there's just all these kind of, you know, side benefits of doing this that you can't expect, but you would never know if you don't start. And I'm all about just the art of a good start, you know, put yourself in, in the best position to do it and enjoy that process. And, uh, you know, to circle back to one thing we talked about, it should come from some part of your heart, not just your head. Beautiful. Yes. 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 That's awesome. The art of a good start. I know. I just wrote that down. I had to write that down too. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. That's perfect. Uh, so Joe, where can people go to find out more about you online? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, well, uh, two things. The, the easiest place is joejacobi.com, J-O-E-J-A-C-O-B-I.com. And it's a very, very simple website. From there, you'll, you can either uh, sign up for Sunday Morning Joe, which is my, my weekly newsletter, or um, you know, there's a link to my performance coaching practice, which can also be found at fivewithjoe.com. Very good. Well, thanks so much for participating, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you both. Well, thank you both for all that you've given to me. I employ a lot of your ideas and I just, I love the way that you challenge all of us to think, please keep up the good work. This is a good thing that you guys have going here. Thanks. Thank appreciate you, it. Yeah. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Michelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.